Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. This is going to inspire you. So I just want to thank you for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got. That's your time. Wherever you are, you could be doing so many different things, but you're not, you're listening to Suncast. So from my heart, thank you for tuning in. If you are new here, I salute you and I thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention. I promise it will not be time poorly invested. Today's entrepreneur is an insightful and thoughtful leader of one of the companies many in the solar industry have come to know and love, Energy Toolbase. I had so much insight and learning from my interview with Reed Wunke that I don't even know really where to start, but a couple of the things that you're going to want to better understand are the keys to success and the systems and team thinking that have formulated how Reed conceptualizes growing and scaling startups and the two critical failures he sees most startup founders and executive teams make. Of course, Energy Toolbase has become a staple in the solar and storage industry. And if you're curious about how and why they've recently introduced things like monitoring and what's going on with the Acumen EMS product, well, you're going to want to stick around because we certainly get to it. But it is a treasure trove of management principles and first principles thinking that will have me coming back to listen to this episode time and time again. And if, like me, you love what you're hearing in today's episode, I hope that you will subscribe to the show if you haven't already, because that'll make sure that you don't miss our twice-weekly content just like this. And you can definitely go check out more than 400 additional founder stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. But for now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today is going to be a fun interview. It's one that, candidly, I've been waiting for for two and a half years. Many, many, many of you have asked if I'm ever going to do an interview with the arguably leading software for energy modeling in the resi and probably commercial and even utility space in the United States for photovoltaics. And the answer is always yes, when they say yes. And so they finally said, yes, I'm so, so excited. And I have the privilege today of having the president of Energy Toolbase, Mr. Reed Wunke on Suncast. We'll probably go into a lot of his background as we usually do. But first, let me say welcome to Mr. Reed. Welcome to the Suncast. Hey, Nico, thank you very much for having me. And, uh, and thanks for your patience over the years. We were just waiting for the right time to do this. Well, there's no time like the present. And we're going to have a lot of fun on today's conversation. Reed, there's so much that uh, I've enjoyed getting to know about you as we 
discussed getting the interview up and getting getting the world more familiar with the finer, the nuances of a product that I feel like many people feel like they know really well. It's become one of those essential tools. I would argue that if you asked 95% of the U.S. Uh, residential solar market, someone in their organization is using Toolbase. So it's going to be fun to dig in today to the company behind that product and, and hear more about how you're expanding. One of the key areas that defines how you are a part of uh, Energy Toolbase is the merger some two years ago. So we'll definitely dig into that. Before we go too far down the rabbit hole of the product and the company, I do want to learn more about Read the Person. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up in your household? I'm curious, particularly if there were any early signs of entrepreneurial spirit, maybe what did your parents do? Does geography play in to the way you grew up, et cetera? Yeah. So I grew up uh, location-wise just outside of Calgary in a little farming bedroom community called Airdrie. And it's a unique one, right? My, my whole family, um, you know, my dad was a geologist in, in the oil patch. Basically everything revolving around Calgary is either um, oil and gas related or uh, agricultural related. So I think a lot of my upbringing really happened in um, kind of the suburban Calgary um, kind of farming space, um, heavily influenced by oil and gas. And um, it's an interesting one, right? Where I don't think that I ever had many entrepreneurial ideas or inklings as a, as a, as a child or even as a teenager. I think a lot of that developed um, a little bit later in life. And, you know, if, if you look at my, my story, you know, from, you know, effectively right from high school into the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force, into a couple of startups and management consulting and some, uh, some M&A and uh, a bunch of different kind of, kind of dots on that, on that career path. Um, you know, if, if I look back and see what is what was tied to my past um, and my upbringing, there there really isn't a ton of uh, a ton of connective uh, tissue there between you know the way that I was raised or the the things that my my parents did or that my family did uh, did growing up. I've always been a little bit just curious on on kind of carving my own path and doing doing things that are, are a little bit different. And certainly the, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit um, and, and being bit by that bug probably happened kind of in my my mid to late twenties. Do you remember anything particular about the conversation around the dinner table that stands out to you as a child? I think the the biggest thing that stands out to me as a child is just the level of consistency of uh, of, of the childhood experience. You know, I, I was big into into sports into school, and my my parents were always there. You know, every day. You know, my dad would get home, at, you know, from work at about the same time as he worked in downtown Calgary as a, as a geologist, and you know, would kind of come home, have the same same sort of routine. Um, you know, luckily my my mom was able to spend um, a lot of my um, childhood years at home, kind of raising my sister and I full time, and and there was just a ton of stability and consistency consistency just around that experience right which um yeah you know i mean it could come directly out of a out of a sitcom or or out of, you know <laughs> an 80s tv program but um i think that's the thing that stands out the most as opposed to uh, you know any sort of specific uh, discussion topics or or the way that we would um you know kind of talk about the world it was more of a just steady uh, kind of consistent approach to you know family support family engagement and um and a schedule how would you juxtapose that now to your life as an entrepreneur Oh, it's a hundred percent different. <laughs> it is, it is so dramatically, uh, dramatically different, right? Where the life of the entrepreneur, I mean, it's, it's about, um, hustle. It's about, uh, you know, capitalizing on opportunities. It's about, you know, the, the, the biggest, uh, change I made in, um, kind of going from large corporate into the, the world of entrepreneurship. So I had to talk to, um, my partner and, and wife, uh, Sarah to really make sure that we understood how we were setting our life up and, and to make sure that there was enough support. 
I'm very firm believer that, especially as a, as an entrepreneur with with a family uh, or a young growing family, um, you know, you have to be very very conscious and very intentional about the support systems and structures you create because it's not a nine to five life. It is a 168 hours a week. Uh, you decide where those hours go, but um, you better make the right decision because it's it's your level of hustle and engagement that's going to determine whether you win. I'm going to come back to the support mechanisms in a minute. I'm going to make a note here because I think it's important, especially with your, with regard to your story. But I'd love to know if there's something perhaps even unassuming about you that most people are surprised to learn. I think that for me, I have a lot of interests and I have a lot of hobbies. I'm, I'm the kind, honestly, I'm the kind of guy where I work a bunch. I'm, I'm really dedicated towards kind of building the, the team, supporting the team and, 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 uh, and continuing to build the renewables industry. But at the same time, I could retire tomorrow and I'd be fine. I, I'd be just, I, I mean, financially, I would not be fine. <laughs> but um, with the hours of my day, I'd, I'd be fine with, um, with the hobbies and the passions and, uh, and the ideas that I, that I would want to, um, to pursue just on, on, the, on the personal side and, uh, and more mm-hmm. so on the uh, community and giving back side. So it's one where, you know, I think a lot of people look at what, what I put into the, the work and how I think about, you know, continuing and evolving my professional endeavors. And I've, I've probably come across as someone who wouldn't know what to do with free time if they had it. But it, that's certainly the, the opposite of the true. I could, I could easily use up uh, all free time with, uh, with the hobbies and passions and interests that I kind of have on the back burner um, that are just kind of waiting, waiting for the time to shine. I'll give you an opportunity here as a thought experiment, just as a way to expand early in the interview. I've asked this a couple of times and it's always a, a crowd pleaser at a dinner, right? You always think, what are the questions you can ask that are thought provoking at dinners? So you've got a great support system around you. As an entrepreneur, we typically don't take Saturdays off, like it or not. It, there's always an hour or two. We sort of sneak away and get shit done. But let's imagine for a moment that your partner says to you Friday evening, hey, tomorrow I've got the kids. There's really nothing that you need to do. Uh, you're going to leave your phone here in the fishbowl. What do you do with that With that? Let's call it eight hours of freedom. No electronics. Eight hours, no electronics. Oh, it sounds like I should actually do that at some point. Um, <laughs> novel would, idea. Novel idea, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, first thing, I'm, I'm largely driven by kind of to-dos and, and senses of accomplishment. Um, you know, I, I do a lot of work around the house and, uh, and you know, engineering background. You know, I, I do a lot of work on my, um, on my cars and vehicles and, and construction around the house and all, all that kind of stuff. So first thing is, is I get a, an extreme amount of pleasure and, and pride from being able to get things done, right? Especially, you know, things, jobs that are on the list for, for a long time. So I, I would honestly probably start there, not because I feel you know, a, a need to keep working or a need to be productive. But, um, but I do take a lot of pride in, um, in, you know, effectively crossing stuff off the list and, um, and, and actually completing jobs. And if it's not that, if it's, you know, more uh, personal related, I'm absolutely either strapping on the trail runners, heading into the mountains or, uh, or jumping on my bike and hitting the trails out in the, cause Calgary is just a, you know, a 45 minute drive away from, you know, a place called Canmore or the, um, uh, the Kananaskis Provincial Park or the Banff National Park, um, you know, we're, we're right in the foothills of, of the Rockies and, uh, and, and there's just something euphoric and, and very spiritual for lack of better words, um, of being outside, um, in the mountains and, uh, and really just enjoying that fresh air, getting some exercise. I love it. And it's an answer that is a very common answer. I would su- I would suggest for most of the folks I know who are in Western Canada in particular, it is one of the most beautiful places on the planet and outdoors, despite the chilly nature of outdoors part of the year. Uh, is a place where, a lot, where folks like to spend a lot of time. I'm going to circle back to this question around things that are unassuming 
I always spend a, a decent amount of time kind of looking through someone's background and their LinkedIn. So the thing that stuck out to me that I find unassuming and surprised me a bit about you is your willingness to expose a bit of your sense of humor and also your dedication to family as a part of your of your cultural fabric. It's a part of who you are, uh, evidenced by the title that I find most compelling in your LinkedIn, Chief Family Officer. A brief stint in the long haul of work, but could you tell me more about this uh, this brief period as Chief Family Officer? Yeah, that was a bit of a bit of a tongue in cheek. Um, I was I was transitioning, I think, at the time between um, uh, between consulting and the uh, and the first startup that I was uh, that I was doing. So I took a few months off, and you know, funny enough, even though it was chief family officer, I also filled a lot of my days rebuilding um, a house in Toronto. So uh, it kind of took me, unfortunately, away from some family in there in there too. But for for me, you know, the the notion of we'll call it that transparency or trying to inject a little bit of that humor. It's, it's really just about trying to be as real and authentic and, uh, and visible as possible, right? I think it's really important uh, for, for myself, independent of being a leader or not, to really try to communicate and convey kind of who I am, right? And, um, and be humble enough to know that, you know, what I think is important and, and confident enough to, to know that if, if you think it's important too, great. If, if not, okay, that, that's fine too. Um, but this is how I view the world. This is how I need to bring humor into, into my life to, um, to be able to manage and to better cope. And it's really about providing just an, an, excep- an exceptional or excessive amount of, of transparency and visibility into, into trying to kind of showcase my, my authentic self. Um, it's something I've, I've had to work on quite a bit, actually, because uh, early in my career, I certainly had this not problem, I would say, but I had a mindset, right, you know, where I had to project, you know, the the perfect leader or in the case of the military, you know, the, the perfect officer. But I, I slowly realized over the years, right, that perfection comes more so from authenticity and being relatable rather than projecting an image, right, that of someone that you would see on TV or on, on the news or, or something like that. So I've had to shift my mindset around what that definition of, of perfection is and, and skew it more so to being real and human as opposed to being picture perfect, we'll call it. I would like to have some touch points on the early formation of a sense of, uh, of, sense of organization and duty and support systems, uh, which is probably... In, if not entirely, certainly a large part uh, owed, I would assume, to your time as an aerospace engineer at the Royal Canadian Air Force. And of course, there are some startups between then and Payson, an energy tool base. I'd love to hear a little bit about the progression of your career, but in particular, what you were seeking sort of early in life by joining the Royal Canadian Air Force and some of the organizational lessons that you've carried you through the follow on opportunities that you pursued? When I think about my career and, and starting point, you know, like I mentioned, none of my family was in the military or I, I didn't have any exposure. You know, I wasn't in cadets or anything. I was, I was quite frankly, one of those uh, high school guys that watched Top Gun too many times. And the, the notion of, of, of joining the military, right? It was, it was just a unique um, adventure and experience, right? So it was no one from my, you know, um, little, town had really ever done this before. It was a chance to move away from home, which, um, which hadn't happened with anyone in my family before. And it was, it was an adventure, but it was funny enough, I, I considered a, a safe adventure, um, even though it was the, the military, because 
you know, it, it meant, you know, uh, going to the military uh, university, you know, Canada's version of, of West Point, um, you know, and effectively having uh, a, a pretty set schedule there, um, you know, a, a, an early career, um, whether it's in the university or, uh, or in the f- immediate years following, right, that really instills hard work and discipline. It was effectively a, a guaranteed role and job directly out of university, whereas I saw a bunch of my friends, you know, struggling with that afterwards. Uh, it was the ability to get a, a ton of responsibility on, on day one of your career. So it was a, a pretty unique kind of world to go to go in. That was certainly different than anything that I had ever done in in the past. And then when, when I think about the, the decade plus that I spent serving, a couple of elements really stand out to me. First is just around discipline and, and hard work. I, I think that I've always been an individual who's fairly fairly disciplined and knows you know what it takes to get the get the to do list done and and really invest in you know, supporting my team and understanding what the team needs and, and working to working to serve them to enable enable their success and being able to have the discipline of, you know, knowing when it's time to work and when it's time to commit and when it's time to do to do other things, I think is probably a natural mindset of mine, even even though it was certainly reinforced and reestablished in the in the military. And I think in the entrepreneurial life uh, or in the consulting life or in the MA work that I was doing, you know, these are all fairly high demand, high hustle type of roles. And without that discipline, it, uh, it's very, very difficult. And I think the, the second element, particularly that, that the military taught me, was a leadership model that is very people-centric um, as opposed to financial-centric or process-centric or organizational-centric. Uh, it's, it's one where you know, the military, I think, does a great job at understanding if you take care of your people, um, your people take care of the problems. Um, so I, I certainly view my biggest role now in, and in, in any endeavor is how do I, how do I provide the best support possible to the team so that they can do what they need to do? Uh, that's kind of my, my job. My job isn't to win. My job isn't to succeed. It's to enable everybody to win and it's to enable everybody to succeed because that's how the, that's how the company is going to win. If, if I can provide that level of support and if I can enable the team to do uh, what they need to do, then, uh, then the rest takes or takes care of itself. Read. I, I certainly was, and I can't exactly explain why, but I just want to probe the curiosity here. Do you find that folks are surprised to learn that you're an aerospace engineer? Most of the time, yes. I, I feel when I talk about my background, lots of people are surprised by every step that I've had on this um, bit of a meandering path to where I'm currently at. Um, I, I feel like, especially in the renewables industry, a lot of folks have cut their teeth and have been in the renewables industry for a long time, right? Which right. is which which is great. And it's, it's an easier story to tell as opposed to some, you know, dude like myself that has come through aerospace engineering, the air force, uh, consulting with McKinsey, a couple of tech startups, some M&A at a big kind of oil and gas company, right? I, I feel like every step along the journey I've, I've had, you know, to, to me, it, it writes a narrative of, of how I got to where I am today and, uh, and how all of these uh, skill sets and, and experiences that I've gained along the way are, are beneficial to myself. Mm-hmm. But certainly at any time I touch on areas and elements that I've done in the past, none of it's really renewables related, um, even though all of it's uh, very much startup and growth and, and scale up applicable. It, it's a little, little bit shocking because most folks in the renewables have kind of always been in, in the renewables or, mm-hmm. or that's the segment that they've, they've existed in for a long time. Yeah. And if not renewables, then power broadly. And right. Yeah, exactly. And we're at, a, we're at an inflection point in our industry where we very much need to attract talent that hasn't spent their entire career in power, but, but sees the, the, the lifetime opportunity. They see not just the impact, but they see the career growth track that is, is, is adding impact to the world and to their legacy. And that's a bit of what 
I see in your story, which represents so many stories of bright young leaders who enter our industry with a sense of purpose and perhaps for the first time, a sense of understanding how the dots connect. I'd love to connect a few dots for folks that maybe haven't taken a chance to look at, or maybe they're just now for the first time being exposed to read and maybe even energy tool base. There are a couple of key I'll call them stops on the train to pace on for you and their bench.co and mob squad. Can you explain a bit about why the, why you decided to leave McKinsey? Clearly an opportunity coming out of the Royal Canadian Air Force that could lead to very productive uh, and careers and as a consultant. Why leave that to join a, a, a scrappy startup in Canada called Bench? Yeah, for, for me, that was really about being bit by the entrepreneurial bug and um, the sense of ownership, I guess, and and, uh, and control over, over the work that I'm doing, right? As as a consultant, I, I love the, the the firm, I love the people, the the types of projects and uh, the, the content of the work we were doing is, it was fascinating. You're, you're literally working on, you know, some of the, the world's most interesting challenges, uh, both from a profit and, and nonprofit sector view. But my, my, my take, right, especially coming from the Air Force is, is I really needed to work on something and spend, you know, the majority of my, my wakeful hours doing something that I felt was mine, right? I wanted, you know, for lack of better words, I wanted my butt to be on the line with it. And I felt that in my, my view, right, was, was that the best way for me to achieve that, right, was in a smaller company, something that I could really wrap my hands around, something that I could really help grow from, uh, from the start. So once I made that realization, particularly within the, the consulting domain, it was really just a, a matter of time before finding the, the right opportunity to, to cut my teeth on the entrepreneurial vein. When the opportunity with, with Bench came about, um, you know, I, I'd known the, uh, a few members of the founding team uh, fairly well. It was in a location that I loved out, out in Vancouver. It was a business model that was going to be very people-centric and people-heavy. Uh, it was you know, effectively an online accounting company with uh, teams of, of accountants and, and bookkeepers in, uh, in the Vancouver area. And it was one where you know, it was this really unique blend of a, a company that was going to be very heavy in people. I think they're up to 600 people or so now and very heavy in software because they were building their own uh, kind of accounting suite and accounting uh, platform uh, primarily geared around small businesses. So you know, it was the opportunity where... you know. I, I believed in the technology. I believed in the problem that was getting solved. I knew the founding team, and it was uh, it, it was kind of squarely in that space of me being able to feel a deeper sense of ownership, or feel the deep sense of ownership that I was really looking for. Yeah, so you, you kind of put all those all those things together, and it meant uh, you know the the result was packing up the the family and you know, I think we had thirteen duffel bags and put a bunch of stuff into storage in Toronto, and then uh, jumped on the plane and, and moved out to Vancouver. So you moved out to enter in the wild and crazy world of, uh, of accounting <laughs> as a, so, so there's a couple of things for me. It's like, well, how did he decide well, how to get into accounting? And, and I mean, even like get emotionally into it. It's, it's easy for me to see how you could get emotionally into the power industry, but accounting is another sector altogether. You were hired in as sort of founding team executive, right? I don't think you're considered technically a founder or co-founder, but you basically were hired in, as I understand it, to run operations. Could you give us a little bit of understanding of what that entails and how did you even figure out what needed to be done? Yeah, when, when considering the option of joining Bench and, and joining the uh, joining the team there, especially in, in the world of uh, the exciting world of accounting, I, I like to consider it the sexy world of accounting because let's, let's face it, that's exactly what it is. 
the unique component here, right, was the team was growing and scaling and, and the founding team there, well, actually the, the original four founders, they had product engineering, marketing and sales covered, right? Like the, the, the product had established product market fit. They had already been operating for a few years. They had gone through numerous iterations about what the market needed, the sales approach, the marketing approach. And they had gotten to the point of right where they were really scaling. They, they, they were seeing customers come in the door that they were not expecting because um, because there was just a, a high demand for the product and service model that, that would come along with it. But the unique thing with, with Bench was that it wasn't just a SaaS software kind of accounting product. It, it came with this beautiful service component where you had a team of bookkeepers and accountants, you know, working in the back, um, in the background to, to compile your financial records for you, you know, categorize transactions, build your income statement, balance sheet, all, all of that sexy accounting stuff. <laughs> and that was a pretty unique component because now all of a sudden you're trying to scale a company and it's not just a SaaS model where you need to spend more on marketing and bring, uh, bring more customers in the door. And then maybe, you know, for every hundred thousand customers you bring in, you need a couple more engineers to, to support the product growth, right? This is the one where, right, where we really had to establish, well, for every hundred customers, we need, you know, half of an accountant and two bookkeepers and this amount of kind of uh, HR and people staff to be able to support the team as, as it grows. So trying to define that most granular unit of growth was really one of the uh, the first challenges because that that then creates this model that you try to copy paste, um, right? So the, the, the world and the problem set of creation and how do you create a scalable model was kind of the, the first tackle. And then the second tackle there was now that you've established what you think is kind of the, the model you need to copy paste, how do you replicate it? So you go from this, this mode of create into replicate, right? And, and I, I found certainly in the entrepreneurial world, you end up cycling back and forth between these two, these two domains quite, quite regularly. And, and they require different skill sets, different mindsets, uh, different approaches. Uh, but you, you need to be able to, to swap back and forth because when, once you take something and get it into that replication phase and keep it replicating, you need to build team process structure support around it to keep it going and then enable yourself the freedom to go back into that create mode and, and create the next thing that will get scaled and replicated. I don't know if you've ever said that before, but that was one of the most well-defined, <laughs> operationally thoughtful. I, I can't imagine someone listening to this right now who has in any way considered building out software or service as a piece of their business that didn't just learn something. <laughs> that was, that awesome. was brilliant. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have thought about that quite a bit. It shows. And I, probably many others, am connecting that connective tissue from the work that you did, the training that you received, I have to imagine, from the Air Force that instills in you this sense of systems thinking. I think it's wonderful that you have a people-centric approach as a management style, but you very much from training have a systems thinking approach. And that combination is really powerful. So you've spent time at, at two in particular, two really cool startups. I want to talk about the other one, Mob Squad. How did you decide that you're going to join this nearshoring talent solution product company? Yeah, Mo Mob Squad is a really unique story where that was, you know, when I joined Bench, it was the, the founding team was established, the product was already established, and it was more of a scaling opportunity. But with Mob Squad, it was a, uh, a colleague of mine that I'd known, uh, and a dear friend that I've known for well over a decade now. We'd kind of crafted the idea, and, and that was the first thing that we ever took from idea through to funding, through to, you know, actually execution and, and building a company around it. So it was really taking the idea from ground zero and, uh, and really starting to build, uh, build the, um, the skyscraper on top of it. 
And, and really the, the notion here, right, around the, the vision for, for Mob Squad, right, is, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big, you know, patriotic Canadian and, and love, um, <laughs> uh, love my country, you know, wore the, wore the flag on my shoulder for a number of years. And when I think about what countries need to succeed, right, in, in the future, you know, you need, you know, an, an open and accepting, and accepting kind of political and economic system. You need a society, right, with uh, with progressive values that are able to, you know, look at multiple multiple sides of the issue. You need resources, space, you know, uh, natural resources, and then you need smart people, right? So, uh, so when when I kind of thought about, well, how can I impact Canada? Uh, one of the ways that I could do it, certainly through Mob Squad, right, was to bring more people or, or better yet, keep more people um, and, and avoid any sort of elements of, of brain drain. And quite frankly, the, the way that you keep people is, is you create great job opportunities for them, right? So, so Mob Squad was a play where we were partnering with uh, Silicon Valley startups and scale-ups who were finding it exceptionally difficult to find talent. And we we're making it easy for them to create a remote or satellite office in Calgary or Vancouver or Halifax or, or Toronto, so more of a, a nearshoring talent, but not a, not an outsourced app development shop. Right? We were creating teams of full time employees who would have stock options in their resident companies, and and we we're just making it easy to create a satellite office, right, or a remote a remote office. And this was you know before COVID. So it went when COVID hit, and, and people really saw the benefit of having remote teams and the ease with which you can operate remote teams. You know that, that's where the model really uh, really started to shine, uh, particularly for individuals in the US who were on expiring visas, where, you know, instead of getting kicked out of the US back to, you know, the Ukraine or China or India, um, you know, if, if your visa expiring, and we could just move you north of the border, um, get you settled there, you're still in the same time zone as your team, That's amazing. you can still work at the same company, you can, you can travel easy. So, so this is one where, right, where the notion was, how do we get great jobs into these Canadian urban centers, or I guess more great jobs in these Canadian urban centers? And how do we create those positions that people want to fill and then either, you know, fill them with resident Canadians or go globally and find the best talent in the world and attract them uh, to these, uh, you know, great Canadian cities with them, um, with some great jobs that we were able to, to create. So uh, that was really the, the driver behind it. And it was a unique story because like I mentioned, it was the first time that um, uh, the, this dear friend and colleague of mine and I had the chance to take an idea from scratch through to fruition. And well, the, the the lift behind that is just so dramatically different than um, than joining an established company, and um, certainly well worth it. I appreciate being able to hear sort of the inside thinking of how that business came to be. The skeptic in me listens to your story and asks, "Well, if this is so wonderful, why did you leave Mob Squad, Mob Squad to go to Payson? Like under two years, you know, what were you looking for? What was it missing? Can you help me fill in the gap there?" Yeah, the, the time at Mob Squad was probably a little bit longer than than expected. You know, this is this started out as a side hustle um, off of the uh, off of the side of my desk. You know, kind of evenings and weekends kind of work for um, for probably a year before being able to join it full time. And, and like I mentioned, Mob Squad was the first time where it took something from scratch, and that you know that just requires so much more work, right? But when, when there's only two of you working on it, there's just so much to be done. You know, was, you know, there's a, a long period of time before we had any sort of funding. And even when you do get funding, you know, you got to be exceptionally diligent around, you know, how you build the company and how you increase your burn rate and how you think about growth. So there's just an, an unlimited supply of work to do and 168 hours in the week that you got to do it. So I'll be the first to admit that Mob Squad was absolutely a case where over the course of, uh, of a few years working it, it got to the point where it was probably an unhealthy relationship that I had with, um, with my workload, 
right? It was one right where I was balancing those 168 very, very precious little units of, uh, of time that we get each week. I'd gotten to the point where I had not established the right balance. Um, I, I've always tended to work around a very in- integrated work-life um, mix, right? I, I'm certainly not a nine-to-fiver. For me, at any point in time, you know, you just have to take a look at the, the balance of where those hours are going. And, and for me, it just got to the point where too many hours, and I had allowed myself to, to be of the mindset where I needed to put too many hours into into the work. So my relationships with friends were suffering, my relationship with, uh, with my wife is suffering, my relationship with kids... Uh, you get the story. So it was it was about as close to burnout as, as you could get, and I, and I just knew that a uh, that a change was needed. Uh, and you could absolutely argue, well, we just make the change and, and live differently. But it was for whatever reason, it was a little bit different than that. So I, I really needed to um, uh, take some time off. I needed to find a different opportunity and um, and and give myself the the authority, I guess, to uh, to make a more in, uh, intentional change. You know, I want to pause on this for a minute because I feel there's probably more than just myself who (laughs) is selfishly wanting to be the voyeur of your life and, uh, and learn vicariously. However, I've been in a number of startups where I've achieved or I've reached that point in one, in particular, my first sort of example that you just gave, it took a very dear mentor of mine essentially saying, look, you know, uh, It doesn't seem like you're a good fit with your co-founder. You have your emotional attachment wrapped around the axle of this vehicle. Looks like the vehicle may teeter off the edge of this cliff. And if you're attached to it, you're going to be pulled over with it. You know, you should probably consider looking at other options. Were there any outside influences or folks that you sought counsel from that helped you make that decision? There were certainly two that stand out in, in mind for me. I'm, you know, my, my wife, Sarah, was you know, has always been my business partner in all, all endeavors, uh, especially the way that we've kind of established and created our, um, our, our family structure here. So first and foremost, you know, the, the discussions with, with her on, is this sustainable? What's this doing to my health? What's this doing to our relationship? Um, what's this, what's the impact on our kids? You know, this is a, a very daily discussion, if, if not weekly discussion, um, and, and ritual, mm-hmm. right. To, to be able to go, go, go through that process. <laughs> exactly. Right. You, you need to be able to have have that dialogue, right? And the nature of that, of, of that dialogue, you know, just, we can feel it change over time, right? And, and it got to the point, right, where it just became very, very evident that a broader change was needed. And then um, my business partner and co-founder in, uh, in Mob Squad was, uh, was actually the other sound piece of sounding board, which is um, interesting because, you know, uh, he would certainly have a vested interest uh, for me sticking around, but um, he also noticed, and, and he, he knows um, Sarah and my, my family very well. And, um, he, he was able to notice, hey, man, I don't think you're making the healthiest choices here, right? Let, let, let's really think about what what is needed, right? And can you enable yourself mm-hmm. to make uh, healthier choices in this environment? Or is there something, a, a larger structural change that, that is needed? So just from a from a coaching and, uh, and kind of peer mentorship advice perspective, um, he was a great sounding board to be able to think through the, the problem set um, that, I, that I was facing at the time. So certainly between, between my wife and business partner, they were, um, they were the biggest ones that, I guess, sounded the alarm is, is yeah. maybe a little bit intense of a way to put it, but they were the ones to, to sound the alarm first. You're probably familiar with Energy Toolbase. I mean, nearly 1,500 organizations worldwide utilize ETB Developer to quantify the savings and economics of their projects. But did you know that ETB provides a comprehensive suite of software products to help model, control, and monitor solar and energy storage projects all in one platform? That's right. I know you're probably familiar with their industry-leading modeling, but controls, monitoring? Yeah. Acumen EMS software is actually fully 
integrated with energy storage giants like BYD, Delta, Dynapower, and Sakamek, leveraging AI and machine learning to forecast, control, and optimally discharge energy storage systems operating in the field. Or maybe you are looking for ETD Monitor to gain complete transparency into the operational performance and true dollar savings of your operating fleet. Well, if I were you, I'd schedule a Zoom with one of ETB's knowledgeable account managers. You can mention Suncast when you sign up for your free trial and you get a 30-day extended free trial. You can also just click on the tool-based logo at mysuncast.com or in our newsletters or right there in the description of today's episode in whatever app you're listening to this on to take full advantage of this free trial. Don't wait. Hey, want to protect your margins and get projects over the line fast? Look, we all know solar development teams waste millions of dollars every year on inefficient development. We both know that the old school methods of engaging with stakeholders, collaborating on documents, and even pitching investors is literally starving you of the one thing that you won't get back, time. You need greater velocity in your deals that only comes from tried and true duplicatable processes so your margins aren't constantly under attack. And in an increasingly competitive marketplace where even big oils getting in on the green gold rush, the right software will help keep your team focused and in control of what really matters. Lucky for you, Enian Project Manager is purpose-built software made for developers by developers. Sign up for free now and start moving faster with software made just for you. Go to enian.co and see what Enian Project Manager can do for you. That's E-N-I-A-N dot C-O. So here's something that many listening will identify with. At some point, you decided to pull the ripcord and you said, I, got, I, I can't do this anymore. I got to figure out something else, something that is less demanding uh, and, and, and ruinous of my personal and my personal relationships and health. We jumped over it briefly, but you had had some experience in a company called Parkland Fuel. So naturally in Canada, being involved in the oil and gas industry and some, you know, some tangential relationship. I have to imagine that your time at McKinsey also had to have involved at power at some point. How did you come about the opportunity at Payson that led to what you're doing now? Yeah, so Payson was the, was the happy accident that I didn't expect would happen. This is one of those scenarios, right, where as I was thinking about transitioning from Mob Squad into what's next, um, you know, I, I knew I loved Calgary and, and we'd been setting up some routes. And, and at the time, I think my kids were, you know, two and five or maybe three and six years old. So we were establishing a pretty, pretty good foundation. Um, and we knew that we didn't necessarily want to move, even though we'd had the chance to already live across every major uh, Canadian city. So when I was thinking about what's next after Mob Squad, I kind of took a look at my network and took a look at the McKinsey alumni network and, and you know, my school alumni networks and just started reaching out to folks around town to say, hey, I've been so wrapped up into this Mob Squad things. I got no idea what's happening in the Canadian business or the Calgary business sector or, you know, what companies are doing well, what companies are, um, you know, pivoting from oil and gas, um, what it means to work in oil and gas. So I just had to get smarter on the local and job market and opportunity market. And one of the individuals that I had reached out to was also McKinsey alum, um, uh, a gentleman named Marcel Kessler, who was the CEO of Payson at the time. 
So cold called him and said, Hey, can we meet up for coffee? I would really love to just pick your brain on what's going on in Calgary. Cause I'm, cause I'm looking for something new. I really, at the time even didn't know much about Payson. So I did, you know, I was, you know, combing through Payson's website and going through the, the financial disclosure just to understand the company better. So I mean, the CEO, I might as well, uh, I should probably be informed on these guys. So we got together for a coffee, you know, coffee turned into lunch, uh, lunch turned into a uh, discussion with the CFO a couple of days later um, turned into a job offer and I started with them the following week. So it was, it was one of those ones, right. Where, you know, just by pure happenstance, you know, one of the individuals that I had reached out to, to connect with just to understand what was going on in Calgary, you know, at the time Payson was really looking for this uh, VP of new ventures role, which really was a blend of entrepreneurship operations M&A um, and, uh, and diversifying or, or enabling Payson to make diverse, uh, diverse investments off of the oil and gas sector into other sectors. So in, in hindsight, to look at that, that was like the absolute perfect fit. I, I couldn't have designed it. I couldn't have, Nico, I couldn't have like gone to a piece of paper and wrote down that that was the right role. But in, in looking at it and having that discussion with Payson, it was, uh, it was absolutely the right fit, which is probably why things happened so fast at that point. I love the way that you describe your role at Payson. Responsible for identifying, pursuing, operating, and growing profitable opportunities beyond the current rig-based core business. There was a particular period in time, but, you know, folks today, two years on, would look at any number of investments that you and I could rattle off the top of our heads, like Green Lots and, and Silicon Valley or Silicon Ranch, to notable investments that Shell made, Enel, and many others, from traditional utility to oil and gas, who have become vested in the renewable landscape, especially as ESG has become a major part of the discussion and discourse. I remember when the announcement was made that Energy Toolbase had been acquired. You know, first I was obviously really excited for John and Adam and the rest of the ETB team. But the second and the thing that I think most of us in the industry started looking at was, wait a minute, this is an, an oil and gas company. This is a major player in the in the petrol market that is looking at one of our sort of industry darlings and has now just merged them into their business. What's going on here? Is this, is this actually happening? Hmm. It was like, I think it was, it was, and I remember very specifically hanging out with Adam at, at uh, SPI. I want to say it was, uh, well, it was the last one, 2019, the last time we were all in person and hearing the stories of sort of how the conversation came about. But you were tasked with sort of helping Payson grow, as I've just described, pursuing profitable opportunities that get you outside of essentially the the oil and gas core business. How did you think about the core business at Payson and go about finding opportunities that would be a fit? So the really interesting thing there, right, is that Payson's move into the, or investigation of what we'll call it, into the renewable space, particularly around solar and uh, more importantly, energy storage, uh, energy tool base and, and the uh, the business combination there, um, acquisition there, that was actually the second chapter. Um, the, the first chapter, which people don't tend to know, kind of began about five years prior where Payson incubated um, an in-house uh, idea or an in-house entrepreneurial initiative to create a um, intelligent control system, right? So to create a uh, industrialized computer that would try to 
uh, you know, understand on a solar plus storage system or storage standalone, where do you send those electrons for the biggest and most optimized economic benefit, right? So it's about understanding the load profile and, uh, and solar generation profile, the utility rate tariffs, being able to understand the historics, uh, create forecasts uh, around the future, create optimization algorithms so that you can use those forecasts to, to accurately, you know, uh, decide where your controls are going to, are going to send the, uh, send the electrons either on a uh, behind the meter cost reduction basis or a front of the meter grid services, revenue generation basis. Like I mentioned that that happened about five years prior to energy tool base. This was created internal to Payson because, you know, Payson as a company has dramatic skill sets in ruggedized technology, uh, distributed systems, control systems, data telemetry into kind of centralized back office servers. Uh, so all the stuff that it had done and all the engineering prowess that it had built over the last 45 years uh, on the rig site, right, was was directly applicable in creating an energy management system, right, that uh, that, that they, had they had called Payson Power. So when I joined Payson, the Payson Power Incubation Business Unit, you know, uh, at the time was uh, was then five years mature. Uh, they had already had field deployments and um, and was a growing, scaling business that just fell under my purview as uh, as the individual in charge of of new ventures, um, whether they were kind of through acquisition or, or through organic growth, like uh, like Payson Power was. So the ability to take something like Payson Power, which was um, a very kind of ruggedized, intelligent control system that would optimize the economics of real field field deployments. When all of a sudden you you now think about marrying that up with the industry gold standard modeling tool, now all of a sudden you, you're existing along the software spectrum where you have an element of the software um, modeling and predicting, effectively making the promises. And then you have another suite of software to back it up and keep those promises, right? Or actually execute the, the control on it. So the, the energy tool-based move of bringing it together with Payson Power was really the second chapter in Payson's move to create investment uh, in, within the renewable sector. And it was really that notion of very, very complementary businesses, right? To deliver a fulsome suite of modeling, controlling, and then subsequently monitoring products in the solar and storage, uh, in the solar and storage realm. So when, when we looked at it in that, that regard, you know, it was just a natural fit to bring pace on power and ETB together to get that full, um, not only modeling component, but now the subsequent controls and, uh, and of course the, the monitoring that goes along with, um, with energy storage and, uh, PV controls. Yeah. I love the, the promise maker versus promise keeper, uh, analogy that you've given here. It really resonates. And especially after that explanation, the idea that your, uh, your core technology is letting folks know kind of what's possible. Uh, we believe this is how you should make decisions. And then here's, you know, here's this, uh, here's this tool that we can further uh, deep, deep dive into the analysis to, as you said, keep our promises. That's, that's a really uh, thoughtful way to explain it. The other question from a sort of entrepreneurial perspective that I have is whether you had gone out and looked at possible integrations or uh, it was a sort of happy uh, circumstance that ETB, you know, sort of popped up as an opportunity to acquire or invest in. Kind of, how did that transaction come about? When we were sitting within Payson, uh, particularly Payson Power, looking at how to continue to grow, you know, we went down the path of well, how do we continue to invest in this organically and, and drive organic growth? And you know, funny enough, the the Payson Power team had actually built a competing product to Energy Toolbase um, at the time. Payson had called it Storage Architect. And, and it was, um, 
you know, because if, if you think about trying to sell an energy management system or controls, you you have to model it. Like, there's no if ands or buts about it. I mean, that that's how you communicate the the main element of your of your value proposition. So, Payson had already developed a, a modeling component and a modeling tool. At, at the time, we had looked at, like I was saying, at uh, different ways of growing organically by building skill sets ourselves, and then ways of growing inorganically by you know, uh, business combinations, acquisitions um, for for skills that um, and software that had already been developed over over a number of years, and that that had become tried, tested, and true. When the energy toolbase name came up, and we took a look at what energy toolbase had built over over this, or, you know, since 2014, really in, in the market, and developed itself into the gold standard of proposal generation, economic modeling, solar and storage. Um, you know, primarily geared around. Uh, CNI, Resi, uh, and then having some capabilities in the uh, in the utility scale or, or front of the meter segment as well. You know that that became kind of the, the the ideal target, right? To say, listen, if we're going to combine forces with anyone, this is the group, this is the team that knows what they're doing. And, and really, from there, it was just about okay, well, how do we how do we make sure that the the deal works? How do we make sure that you know the the value proposition for everyone works? And uh, and most importantly, how do you then tell that stronger together story right to that um, to the energy tool based team around hey you know here's the opportunity set for the SaaS modeling product and here's the opportunity set for having your controls on energy storage deployments which are you know ramping up dramatically over over the next decade for sure did you cold or even warm outreach to ETB like how did that op- I'm, I'm really curious about how the actual <laughs> the first touch happened yeah I I don't know the exact first touch, but I mean, uh, Pace on Power and ETB had been in the same market, um, you know, for a number of years together. So there, there is, you know, uh, some crosstalk happening at, you know, SPIs and um, uh, energy storage meetups and get-togethers. So, so there is there is some some knowledge there, and, and I think the first elements of deal-related discussion kind of happened in the must have been the early 2019 timeframe. Honestly, just before I joined uh, Pace on team, the, the Pace on Power team, uh, the leadership there had already um, started to engage the Energy Toolbase founding team with the with the discussion around, hey, we're, there's a lot of overlap in, or there could be a lot of overlap in, in what we're doing here. And hey, we've, we've now both spent uh, five years building out these great products that have great market traction, good market fit, uh, all, all these elements, right, that, that now are a little bit more meaningful. So um so, so the, the foundation of the relationship was established. We knew that there was a lot of synergy, a, a lot of great non-competing overlap, even though there was also some, some competing space because Pace on Power had to develop Storage Architect, um, which was kind of a, a bit of a competitor to, to Energy Toolbase. But in looking at the overlap and the and the white space in the areas of growth, um, that's where, you know, when I joined the team, you know, it was, it was already a very warm relationship and the Energy Toolbase team had really started to see the the value in being able to deploy controls onto uh, onto the projects, and uh, and from there it was just about crafting what a combined entity could look like, what the combined business plan would be, and um, and how much value we think that we could bring to developers and asset owners, mm-hmm. and uh, and well, the rest uh, the rest is history from there. Yeah, it is indeed. There's something that again sort of surprised me because you were tasked with the challenge of finding expansion opportunity for Payson. But in a relatively short period of time, you transitioned to the role you have now as essentially the operator. Can you tell me a bit about how that happened, how that came about? So, so that came about very much by design. Uh, when I joined Payson and when I was uh, really working towards enabling them to you know, diversify or, or find investments off of the rig site, um, you know, that, that really struck a, a passionate chord in, um, in, in my soul, if, if you will, right around being able to 
uh, you know, help the trans the energy transition. This is something that's going to take more, many, many decades. But without being very intentional about it, it's just it's not going to happen, and we're going to see ourselves end up in a in in a worse off place than than we'd want to be. So, so for me, you know, even going back to some work I was doing in university and, and college, right, it was you know, around fuel cells and and really, you know, focusing on okay, well, how do we find other ways of, of being able to generate electrons, right, or how do we move? One of the quotes I like is, is how do we move from the from the molecule to the electron? And I think that it's going to take a long time to do that, but we we got to start somewhere. So, so for me, you know, the the chance to be involved um, in the renewable sector. Uh, to be involved in something like um, energy tool base and uh, the modeling, the controlling of systems, being being actually active on uh, on field deployments of uh, of systems that are that are creating this change that, that we need to see in the world, um, you know that that was really a chance of uh, of a lifetime. And then when, when you marry that opportunity with the fact that you know this um, uh, this this investment that Payson had made in energy tool base and in the uh, energy storage renewable sector, it was a very material investment for Payson. It really gave me the opportunity and the ammunition to go back to Payson's board and say, "Hey, we we just we just made a very substantial investment in, in this space. Um, w- would you mind if if we just took the M and A, put it on pause for a little while, and uh, you know allowed me to to dive a little bit deeper into this business and see if I can take some of my background in." startups, in scale-ups, in entrepreneurship, in operations. Can, can I join this company um, and, and help support the team and, uh, and, and, and provide some leadership to see if we can continue to, uh, to grow it and meet, meet, the, um, meet the investment case that we, had, that we had built for it? So it was a bit combination of, yeah, you know, <laughs> get, you know being able to you know, have peace on the board um, incentivized in the right way to have me in the position and then, uh, then having the passion for it as well. I love that so much that, and it's a lesson for all of us, right? You get what you ask for in life. And you saw an opportunity to move back into the startup realm with the blessing of this company that you had helped expand their operations. You saw an opportunity for you to step in as an operator. And I have to assume, uh, help amplify the existing leadership. But it is a natural question that came to me as I kind of think about, well, I was well acquainted with the tool-based team and Gorski and, and sort of the culture of that company. Here you are, an outsider, definitely an advocate for them. But, but how do you go about integrating yourself into a business that has a strong, dynamic founder, CEO, and founding team already in place? Yeah, very, very intentionally, we'll, we'll call it. I, I think that I ended up in a really fortunate position because even from a Payson perspective, I was still an outsider. You know, I was still just a couple months into Payson. I had no deep relationships, you know, built across the pace on power team. That, that, that was not my my brainchild by any means. Um, so, you know, you're bringing together these two companies with complementary capabilities, a little bit of overlap, but more more complement than nothing. And two founding teams, um, right? And and being able to come in and bring them together, you know, at the outset, you can say, well, which one is now going to lead it, right? Or, or which one's in, in charge, right? Um, and, and the best answer there is, well, neither, right? Because both bring the exact capabilities that you need to bring together. So you actually need to create some glue, some connective tissue. You need to create a structure and systems, right, that, that bring these teams together as opposed to layer the teams on on top of each other, like, like one on top versus one on the other. You got to bring them in side by side, almost like two puzzle pieces connecting as opposed to stacking them on top. And because I was, you know, I was effectively outside to pace on, I was an outsider from an ETV perspective. I knew the business is exceptionally well, having been able to take the deals um, deals over the line. You know, I had you know gone to Payson's board and, and kind of got approval to be able to um, uh, uh, exercise kind of leadership role within the new company. Um, and I really wanted to. Right, this was you know high on high on Reed's to do list. 
all of a sudden pull all those things together. And it was very intentional and very, very much by design um, that in order for us to succeed, you know, it, it almost required a bit of an outsider to be able to come in. So, you know, I, I looked at kind of that scenario and saw, okay, well, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate uh, position right now to be able to capitalize on being an outsider to everybody, but also have, you know, developed deep relationships with both of these businesses that, um, that I was positioned very well to be able to come in and, uh, and, again, um, help support the team in, in coming together, right? It was, it was not a forcing mechanism by any means. It was how do I do the things that the team needs so that they can feel more integrated, they can bring their products and people and processes together and um, and continue to support their their continued success and growth. All right, so let's talk about new products, yeah? Yeah. I have been, uh, I've had my mind rattled a bit about sort of having multiple realizations of how, ETB over the last few years in particular, where we've all been in this little bubble of, of COVID uh, operational efficiency and, and not seeing each other in the marketplace as much. You guys are really activating the partnership in ways that I'm sure are feel on plan to you, but they are remarkable for those of us who kind of know ETB as, as you said, the, the residential commercial uh, proposal and solar and storage modeling tool. It is the de facto standard that many of our peers like Helioscope sort of wanted to integrate with and, and needed in many ways to integrate with. I remember really early on having a conversation with Adam Gerza. He was talking about how excited he was about the Gen 1 storage tool and how it was going to change the game and how it was going to change sort of the the, the direction of, of Energy Toolbase. And as you just disclosed, that in fact is the underlying principle that led to the the obvious connection with Payson. How have the products or the product suite evolved? What are you really excited about with regard to Energy Toolbase in the current iteration? You know, let's call it 21, 22 business plan. Yeah, when thinking about uh, the ETB products, you know, if, if you consider the, the modeling separate from the controls, right, each has, you know, kind of a limited a limited view, right? A, a limited kind of growth capability or, or a limited suite of, um, of capabilities and features that it can bring to market. But, but when you start bringing these, these things together, um, you know, from the, the modeling through the controls and then the, uh, the monitoring products that we have now, all of a sudden you're, you're opening up all kinds of different optionality, you know, for example, like in the monitoring, you can leverage your modeling engines to provide post analysis. You know, what if, um, you know, you had put storage on that system? What if you had sized up your storage? What if you had a different, um, you know, panel layout? What if your load profile had changed, right? So being able to run this, this post analysis, um, and, and really understand, you know, not only the, the kind of the, the the electron flow or the production benefits, but the actual economic benefits of it. Um, you know, being able to think about from a modeling perspective, um, you know, locking in uh, guarantees effectively that 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 your model is going to be what you see in the field. Right, being able to understand uh, again that that promise maker, promise keeper element. Um, and creating this in a, in a world, right, where a developer, an asset owner can effectively log into a single portal, they can model out all their projects, they can commission them, they can transition them into being actual visible operational assets, they can see how they're producing, they can understand and see, you know, did I meet my business plan, you know, that the whole point of building a proposal is to be able to measure back against that and see, well, did I deliver what I thought I was going to deliver? Did I deliver as a developer, did I deliver to my uh, customer what I told them was going to happen, right? Being able to do that, that post analysis and being able to, to connect the dots entirely through that whole project development workflow, 
that that's the exciting component, um, I think, for for ETB right now, and being able to have the strong modeling, the controls um, with our you know the field deployments and gaining data around you know every hour of of every day, being able to optimize our algorithms and um, in our uh, in our software even further, pulling all of that together really creates this system where you can know, interact and engage with your proposal, your theory about what could happen and what is actually happening in, in the field. And and it's certainly our, our vision to, to build that around developers and asset owners who can be really hardware agnostic and, and pull together, whether it's solar only or solar plus storage, you know, a monitoring and, uh, and modeling view where they can manage and view and just own truly own the uh, the economic output of, of the assets because that, that's really what the, what they buy them for. So uh, maybe a bit of a, of a vague answer around you know what what's exciting about the software, but it's really in stitching together more and more of that project development workflow, right? Um, all the way from you know prospecting and screening and designing, proposing through to commissioning, and then actually operating these uh, these systems in the field, right? You, you start tying that together, and oh man, that, that creates a, a pretty powerful software platform for uh, uh, renewable developers. Reed, what do you think would surprise folks most about the various areas of operation or even brand extension that ETB is currently exploring and servicing? One of the things that we hear quite regularly, right, is, is the industry, whether it's developers or asset owners or financiers, you know, everybody tends to know ETB as the gold standard for the the modeling, um, the, the economic analysis, the proposal generation component, right? And it's it's probably on on us that, that we have not, um, you know, broadcast the message around our acumen, EMS, and our our controls. You know, getting back to the kind of the origin story, you know, the, the pace on power controls were kind of created and started at about the same time as Energy Tool Waste was was founded. Right, so these things are seven, eight years old now. And um, but between all of our our field deployments of the acumen EMS, um, you know, the the promise maker and promise keeper being able to really deliver a fulsome software suite, um, you know, our, our EMS uh, capabilities and our hardware. Um, you know, is is leveraged and can layer on almost every battery system out there. You know, companies like uh, Socomec and BYD, Delta, SunGrow, Dynapower, Go Electric, uh, LG Chem, Samsung. I mean, you, you name running, it, right? I'm running out of companies that I can name that you didn't. <laughs> right, right. So, so it's it's one right where you know we we have these um, these field deployments, we have these these systems uh, working, we have our, our EMS able to integrate and and um, you know enable these systems to, to charge and discharge to, to optimize the economics of the uh, of the specific use case. So that's an area where, where most people are, are probably more familiar with the modeling tool, right? Where, um, you know, we, we've got, you know, thousands of solar and storage developers um, uh, around the world really using the modeling tool um, to, to help understand, you know, what systems are capable of, uh, of, of delivering in the field. But few, I think, really understand the, uh, the, the control system that, um, uh, that we built in and how we are creating our, our controls to really be hardware agnostic so that depending on the use case, depending on the sizing and the siting requirements, depending on, on what that asset owner or, or that customer really needs, you know, you can almost be guaranteed that you're going to find a system that can be controlled by the, uh, the ETB Acumen EMS that can deliver um, the optimized economics for it. Sounds very similar to one of your customers, Stim. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that, that, that's the exactly lines start it. to blur up for you, I'm sure. Right, exactly, and, that, and that's where you know we think that you know personally, I think STEM's done a fantastic job over the last decade or or more even in, in creating um, a category which had never really existed before, mm-hmm. right? In, in terms of energy management systems and, and controls, right? And they are you know arguably the the pioneer in in the space. But uh, I'd also be you know remiss to, to not say that they, they're certainly our, our largest competitor on the uh, on mm-hmm. the controls side, um, and, uh, and and certainly a formidable competitor that, that we that we 
look at um, with with great admiration on, on what they've been able to do in the market and how they think about their um, their EMS and um, and how they think about controls, um, especially yeah. in you know new markets where where we're uh, where we're exploring, such as New York and Massachusetts. You know, areas where front of the meter and grid services are becoming more and more more and more prevalent. It, um, it it's a very unique um, kind of relationship and uh, um, blend that we have with uh, with STEM. You know, listening to this, it's starting to make a lot of sense to me now. The announcement that you guys made uh, a few weeks ago on ETB Monitor. How do you, as the leader of the organization, think about new product introduction, and where does that fit in the suite of products that you offer? It's the new, sort of the newest kid on the block for you. It is. It is absolutely. And for me, the the new product introduction, right? It really starts with a ton of internal work to make sure that we're building the right thing, right? We, we need to be bringing value to developers and asset owners at, at every point in the game, right? So with ETB Monitor, this is our ability to create, um, you know, our, our, our cloud-based system where you can actually go in and, and interact and engage with the Acumen EMS. So you can see the performance, you can understand and see what the algorithms are doing for sites that are uh, manually controlled or have different set points. You actually go in and interact with the EMS in a way where you are creating those set points um, for, for sites that are fully autonomous, um, AI-enabled sites that are, uh, that are autonomously controlled, that you know, you're able to go in and, and understand and see the... Um, see the financial performance uh, of the site. You're able to see the PV production, the electron um, performance and production of, of the site. And, and you're really able to now interact and engage with the system in, in a very meaningful and, and compelling way. So, so for me, the, the, the new product introduction right, has to begin with what is going to be helpful and useful for developers and, and asset owners. And, and for us, you know, the model control monitor notion of our, of our software and bringing that together was to have a single platform where you can actually go in and see your proposals right through commissioning, right through to deployment and be able to kind of experience, interact and engage and, uh, and observe them operating in the field. And, and I think that that's an, an exceptionally useful component for uh, developers and asset owners, which is why, um, yeah, we were excited to be able to, to build it and, uh, and create part of the, um, the release for ETB Monitor around it. Yeah, amazing. I mean, you guys continue to expand the offering as a comprehensive suite so that the developers you are making promises and keeping promises for can accurately visualize and, and integrate that data. I'd be missed, remiss if I didn't ask given that you guys are so close to the storage market, what are you excited about in energy storage right now? For me personally, the the biggest thing I'm excited about is just the explosion in different types of storage technologies and, and the different innovation that, that's occurring in the space. You know, I, I think right now we have a very strong foundation of, of stalwart players like, you know, BYD and Silkamac and LG Chem and SunGrow and like, uh, a, a lot of systems, right, where where the foundational element is kind of that that lithium um, lithium ion battery system, right, or, or, or lithium iron phosphate batteries, right, that are creating this this foundational structure. But you know, if, if I'm to project, um, you know, where I think the industry is going, particularly on the utility scale and C and I side, where space constraints aren't necessarily the same as uh, as the residential side. Um, you know, this is an area where different types of battery technologies, whether that's um, mechanical or flow or, uh, 
you know, unique, smaller, more modularized systems. Those are technologies that I think are going to be the, the longer term winners, particularly in the utility and CNI side, because we have the space um, to, to work with. So we can think about technologies that are much more environmentally friendly or easier to install. You know, things that jump to mind certainly are flow batteries, whether it's vanadium flow or iron flow, um, you know, modularized companies, um, you know, like, like Yada putting, um, you know, uh, battery packs underneath panels, making it easier to install, faster to install. All of these different types of technologies have their place and have their use case. And for me, I'm excited about the different types of ways that energy storage can be, uh, energy storage demands can be met. So a developer might have had a site where, you know, a few years ago, there was not a suitable energy storage option for it. Um, And now, because of the innovation and the proliferation of ideas uh, that have been operationalized in this space, we, we now probably have three or four different options for energy storage that'll that'll suit that, that site. So that, that's what I'm pretty excited about. I want to turn towards home base here as we wrap what has been for me a really, really fascinating interview with some of the questions that folks are definitely accustomed to hearing me dig into. I'm going to wrap them perhaps in different trapping, but nevertheless, they are kind of a lessons learned and and how you learn oriented questions. Given your work at McKinsey and the various startups that we've already mentioned, what would you say are the one or two areas that you typically see as key areas entrepreneurs typically screw up? Call it your advice to an entrepreneur that's looking to scale. Maybe it's structuring the business or the team, growth capital. I don't know. Where do you see one or two common and critical failures in setting the business up for success? So for me, the, the two biggest areas um, right, that, that I always provide advice and, and suggestions and recommendations on um, can, can really just be summarized in two simple words. First word, sell. Second word, grind. Um, <laughs> two separate areas, right? But I, I think, you know, an, an obsession around selling, right? And, and creating value proposition. I mean, like a business is not going to grow. You're not going to be able to attract people. Or you're not going to be able to attract um, cash flow or investment. No, no one's interested in in any element of, of a business that, that isn't selling, right? And um, uh, ETB's uh, VP of sales, uh, uh, a great friend called, uh, named Scott, he, he's got this catchphrase, which, which I absolutely love. He just says, sales cures all. Mm. Absolutely true. Sales cures all. There's all kinds of problems that you got to solve, but if, if you're selling, everything becomes a lot more manageable. So an incessant focus on continuing to sell, um, particularly because that, that will give you instant feedback on what's valuable and what's not. So you create something of value, you try to sell it. If it doesn't sell, you go back, you refine the value, you go th- you go through that loop until you actually have a strong value proposition, and then you got to focus on on selling. And then the second component is is related to grind or hustle, right? This is one where you know you need to have a great product, you need to have a great idea, but at the same time, you know a lot of great ideas are beat out by teams that just work harder and and work longer and 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 the, the world of entrepreneurship for anyone who's curious is not about work-life balance right it is about <laughs> creating something that has never existed before right this is you know for example if you think about um you know uh, basketball players you know guys like uh, kobe bryant or michael jordan or mm-hmm. uh, lebron james one of the reasons that they're so good, yes, there's a bunch of natural talent there, but even more important than natural talent is reps, right? These are the these are the kind of guys who are on the court until midnight shooting the free throws, right? They are outworking, they're out training, 
They are out hustling and out competing everybody else in the space, right? You have to do the company and the corporate and the business equivalent of that, right? So you have to do more free throws than anyone else, right? You have to sprint more than anyone else. You have to lift weights more than anyone else, right? So all of the business equivalents of that really translate into the amount of grind and the amount of hustle that you put into into the business, right? I, I believe you need to have a great idea, right? It would be very obvious if, if you're trying to start a business that does not have a great idea, but at the same time, you can beat out a ton of other great ideas uh, simply through grind and hustle. I believe that mentorship is a strong piece that informs great leaders. I don't presume that people I see who are excelling came up with all the ideas on their own, although that is often foisted on us in social media. What do you feel are some of the key lessons or takeaways from the important mentors in your life that you that you perpetuate in your business practices and, and how do you generally think about mentorship? I certainly love learning from other people, right? Le- learning from others' mistakes is, is just so much easier, so much easier than, than making those mistakes yourself. So from a, from a mentorship perspective, you know, a couple of things that I've really, you know, taken to heart, right. That have really served me well and, and helped out over the last number of years. One is just a, a quote from, from this old crusty old Colonel um, that I had back in, back in the air force days, and this is one right that has just always resonated with me because it just it it has a bunch of layers to it right which which are just kind of fun to to think about and and the quote was you know probably going to get it wrong but it goes something like you know the only time I like surprises are on my birthday and Christmas right it's very very simple right very simple concept but it just speaks to so many elements of how to run a team how to run a business and how to set expectations across uh, across your peer group and and your your colleagues right the only time you like surprises is on christmas and on your birthday you might see me at work on my birthday you certainly don't see me at work on christmas so there should be no surprises right and and what really that that drives into um, for me is just an element of communication and transparency um, right that is required across not only, you know, a, a peer group, uh, but uh, the broader company, right, which, you know, certainly influences my, my leadership style and um, just the, the, the way that I communicate myself to, to the world as well. So I'd like to respond to actually the two, two of the things that you've just recently introduced. The first, I'll go in reverse order. So this idea of surprises is one that I wish I'd gotten advice about early in my career, but I did get this advice in, in a similar way when I was at Conergy developing solar projects. And actually both of these examples are from Conergy and they relate back to the examples that you've shared. And, and one was by a dear friend, David Flory. He said, don't ever walk, you should never walk out of uh, an executive committee meeting where you're asking board approval of a thing, uh, surprised by the answer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Because it means that you didn't do the work going into the meeting to know what the answer is going to be. And, and that did happen. Uh, and it was in response to uh, having a project we thought was a slam dunk get rejected for very logical reasons uh, that I had not done the necessary work going into the board meeting to, to get approval on. The, the second was back to Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan doing the reps. And I remember working in Latin America and I probably had this conversation with a, a dozen, probably said it here on the podcast, but I remember working in Latin America, just you don't see as many deals, right? And I had a mentor sit down with me at lunch one day, I was 35 and he said, you know what's going to happen? I was 36. He said, you know what's going to happen? You're eventually going to have someone become your boss who's 30 years old. The reason he's going to become your boss and the reason he's going to sit you down and ask you to tell him everything you know about the market that you've spent the last 15 years learning is because he's done probably two or 3,000 deals and you've done maybe two or three dozen. And at the management level, executives are going to value his experience of having done the reps more than your experience of being a subject matter expert in the region. And 
literally within three months that happened. <laughs> and uh, it was the, it was that cold bath that you realize like in your mid thirties, holy crap, like, did I make a tactical error in my career progression? <laughs> you know? And yep. that's when I, and when people ask me advice in their twenties, the number one piece of advice I give them is exactly what you said. Get the reps in and get them in with a company that's going to give you visibility on hundreds or thousands of deals, not like the, the, the choice five or 10, but hundreds of thousands, because that's how you can build that situational awareness, that ability to, to, uh, to pattern match, which is so critical as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, right? And I, I think especially in, you know, your, your 20s and maybe, maybe early 30s, right? That whole segment of, of your professional pursuits and endeavors, that's about grind, hustle and reps, you know, like that, that's, you know, maybe, you know, if, if you're going after work-life balance or, or you want to, you know, invest fewer hours in, in the profession, that, that's fine. Everybody can make their, make their own choices. But for totally. those that are pursuing professional growth, right, and really using that time frame to invest in their future selves, that's the time where you're, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're on the court doing free throws until midnight or, or one in the morning every, every day, right? Like that's, that's what that period of life is for. All right. Speaking of which, it's, this is the two minute drill. It's All the, right. We need to wrap this in the next two minutes. So what's the coolest climate tech or energy startup idea that you've seen in the last 12 weeks? The coolest, honestly, was a, um, a recycled plastic uh, or recycled plastics where this, um, I think it's a, a Nairobi based uh, company, right? Where they're making paver bricks out of recycled hmm. plastics. Um, so they're, they're solving a, um, a fantastically large um, kind of waste issue and, uh, and creating a sustainable infrastructure um, solution out of it. Um, this uh, this wonderful lady I saw online uh, named uh, Nzabi Mati, uh, based out of Nairobi, Kenya. I don't don't know the the company name, but they've created a unique technology to take plastic garbage and create paver bricks for roads and patios and sidewalks. Awesome to see. That's amazing. <laughs> what book have you recommended them or gifted the most, and why? Gifted the most. Um, Honestly, it's, it's a book uh, called Brain Rules by a, uh, an author named John Medina. The best way to think about this book is that this is kind of like an instruction manual for your brain and all of the chemicals that your brain produces that control your behaviors, your feelings, your reactions, and, and emotions. It is such a fascinating read, nonfiction, certainly, and it, it really talks about you know the impact of sleep, the impact of exercise, the, the impact of like what, what goes on in your brain when you cross something off your to-do list and feel good. What, why does all of that happen? Um, such a fascinating book, um, Brain Rules by, by John Medina. I, um, it's one I read every couple of years. Um, just, uh, just really reminds me about, okay, well, what's, what's the chemistry going on upstairs that causes me to feel the way that I'm feeling and how do I do things to influence that chemistry? Well, I'm going to list all the ways that folks can interact with you on LinkedIn and of course, the Energy Toolbase website. So we'll skip that piece and we'll skip the morning routine, but it's worth noting that we started this interview at 6.30 a.m. So that gives you a little bit of the an idea into Reed's culture and work habits and ability to get up and be sharp this early in the morning. So thank you for that. Let's end today, Reed, with what I call a bold prediction. What do you think is going to happen in the market in the next, call it 18, 24 months? What are you seeing that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? For, for me, the crystal ball, you know, it obviously relates back to, to storage, right? And on the energy storage side, you know, I am exceptionally bullish about the need for storage to help modulate the variability of, uh, of wind and solar from the, on the renewable side. I, I think to date, um, lithium-ion uh, batteries have really played a major role. Uh, I don't think that's going to be the case if, if we project ourselves 10, 15 years out. I, I think that as technologies improve, as we get 
battery technologies, energy storage technologies that are more environmentally friendly, require less mining, require less processing, that, that result in fewer supply chain interruptions like what we've seen through, uh, throughout COVID that are not competing against uh, EVs. You know, I think that we're going to see some fantastic uh, new battery and energy storage technologies um, right, emerging that are going to fill the void and fill the need of, of the many, many gigawatt hours that, uh, that the world needs to, um, to be able to hit a renewable goal. So uh, that's my, my bold prediction is that the battery landscape that you currently see is going to be a foundational layer that is dramatically transformed over the next uh, 10 to 15 years around, uh, around new battery t- or energy storage technologies coming out. Reed Wenke is the president of Energy Toolbase, which merged in 2019 with Payson Power as a subsidiary of parent company Payson Systems, Inc. It has been genuinely a pleasure, Reed, getting to know you and hearing your insights on the storage market that is unfolding before us. Thank you for joining us here on Suncast. Well, thanks for having me, Nico. It's been a great discussion. Well, if you didn't know, now you know. You have gotten the insight and inside scoop on what is up in the storage industry from one of the folks on the front lines. I'm proud to call Reed an adopted solar warrior as he has so gallantly strode into the renewables industry and led Toolbase along with Pace and Power into the new era of solar plus storage. If you were inspired by this episode, would you do both of us a gigantic favor and go over to LinkedIn and either find the post that I or maybe Adam Gerza have shared about this episode and reshare it or at the very least, give us a like and a comment. Help with that LinkedIn algorithm juice that we so love and appreciate. And I'll reciprocate and thank you for your comment and your like and engagement. But I also just really want to know what did you learn from today's episode that you're going to apply to your business. If you get our newsletters, then feel free to just hit reply on the newsletter you got today in your inbox that maybe even prompted you to listen to this episode and let me know why you chose this one and what you learned from it. I'd love it if you'd say those words out in public in Twitter or LinkedIn, but I really do value your insight so that we can continue to bring you the type of content just like this that is going to help you grow your business and career in the clean energy economy. If you're eager to keep learning, well, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion on Suncast, along with the social media links for Reed and his team and the book recommendation that he dropped a little bit ago, Brain Rules by John Medina. I literally went immediately and picked that one up from my own personal library. Can't wait to dig into it. But you can get links to that right in the blog over at mysuncast.com. If you click on the show notes tab, that'll take you to it. If you're listening a little later, you'll have to scroll down or you could jump all the way to the bottom and click search episodes, a little little known tidbit of insight there for being a whole podcast episode listener that you can get. You can search any name or topic and and it'll show you episodes related to it. You search for Reed's name, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, since you're going to be hopping online and you're going to be on the website, please do subscribe to our newsletter because that is where I share all the goodness about what I'm digging up in the world of renewable energy or where I'm traveling in the world as we're getting into something that feels more normal. Travel to Texas and D.C. and California recently has revived my belief that (laughs) things are going to be okay. If you would like to just get to know me better, you can subscribe to the newsletter so that we can have regular email exchange because I love that as well. And don't miss out 
on next week's practical tactical tips on Tuesdays and long form thoughtful interviews with folks just like Reed on Thursday. It's every single week, folks, for more than 400 episodes. We'll keep showing up because you keep showing up. Thanks again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also how you can learn how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they're doing. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. As Reed so eloquently pointed out, you are putting in the reps. And that's half the battle.